All right, let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the spiritual gifts you brought and for the things that have been shared just now. And I love how you work through us as a, as a body and through each of the home groups that are, that are here. You're so faithful. And Lord, I pray that you would powerfully work through your word right now. Isaiah is an amazing book and it's way over my head in terms of being able to do justice to these prophetic words you gave Isaiah to write. But Lord, would you come and just like take over this? And I pray that you'd open each of our hearts wide to receiving what you want to say to us today. I pray for your help upon me and just pour out your spirit right now, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Good. Well, as I was just thinking about this passage that we're going to be studying uh, this morning, one thing that struck me was that every, every single human being uh, feels a weight of guilt for wrong things that we've done. Don't we all? This, this just weight of guilt. We've done wrong things, and, and, and there's just this painful guilt. And guilt is a painful emotion, a painful feeling. And so because we've got this weight of guilt, we all try to get rid of it. Different things we try to do. I mean, we, we try to tell ourselves, well, nobody's perfect. Or we try to compare ourselves with other people. Well, I'm better than that person anyway. Or, or we try to make up for it by doing something good. You know, we give to the cancer society or we go to church. Or, but none of those things does anything. Because you can do all those things, do all those things, do all those things, but you know the weight of guilt for things we've done wrong is still there, just weighing on us. But I've got some really good news, which most of you won't be too surprised by, and that is that this book, God's Word, says something that's just, it's astonishing. And if you've heard this before, don't let it become old. This book says that it's possible for you to feel all that weight of guilt lift off of you. Lift off of you. And for God's perfect, complete forgiveness to come upon you, to feel the the guilt lift off of you and to feel his perfect love and forgiveness come upon you and just flood your soul. That's what this book says you can experience. And let me give you one illustration of a man who experienced this, who wrote about it. George Whitfield, one of my heroes, you've heard me talk about him. He so powerfully experienced the weight of his guilt lifted off of him and God's perfect forgiveness coming upon him. It transformed his life. He started preaching about it all through England. And England was transformed by his preaching and others preaching too during this time, 1700s. Listen to what he wrote in his journal. 1700s. But, oh, With what joy, joy unspeakable, even joy that was full of and big with glory, was my soul filled when the weight of sin went off and an abiding sense of the pardoning love of God and a full assurance of faith broke in upon my disconsolate, that means like despairing, really, really sad soul. Okay, so did you get that? He's saying what joy that's 
unspeakable and full of glory did I feel when the weight of my sin went off and God's pardoning love came upon me. So that's what this book says you can experience. And the reason I mention that is that in this next section in Isaiah, he's going to tell us how. How can you experience that? So let's turn to Isaiah. We're in chapter 5 and 6 today. Lord willing. Isaiah chapters 5 and 6. If you need a Bible, yeah, thanks guys. Go ahead and raise your hand. Don't be bashful. We want you to have a Bible to look at. The Bible is what we're all about here at Mercy Hill Church because the Bible points us to Jesus and Jesus is our Savior and Lord and treasure. So we're all about the Bible. And Isaiah 5 and 6 is what we're going to be focusing on today. Isaiah 5, by the way, is on page 569 in the Bibles we just passed out. Now let's just start off with the review, though, to get kind of a running start on the passage. What's Isaiah been saying so far? And I put a little picture in your, in your notes, and here's, it's up in the front here too, just a kind of way that I find helpful to organize to see where a book is going, where an author, a biblical author, is, is taking us. And those of you guys who are doing arcing, this might, you might find this helpful. You may want to ask some questions about it. But here's what's going on. Chapter 1, What Isaiah is saying is that Israel has sinned terribly against God and must be cleansed from her sin, from her guilt, or face terrible punishments. That's where chapter 1 leaves you. So if you were an Israelite reading through the scroll of Isaiah, at the end of chapter 1 you'd be thinking, I need to be cleansed from the guilt of my sin. Whoa, look at what Isaiah has just written in chapter 1. Then chapter 2, Isaiah looks ahead to the future. And he says, chapter 2, 1 through 5, In the future, God will raise up a cleansed Israel. Talked about this last week. And all the nations will see her, be drawn to her, learn of God from her, and be saved. That's what's going on right now. True Israel, Jews and Gentiles trusting Jesus. So if you were an Israelite reading this, you'd have said, Oh, that's good news. God does cleanse Israel. Cleansing's possible. That's where you'd be at the end of chapter 2, verse 5. Then chapter 2, verse 6, all the way through the end of chapter 2, all through chapter 3 to chapter 4, verse 1, Isaiah comes back to the present, and it's a very depressing section. Israel, Israel, you are filthy with sin. He lists off their sins, and you are facing horrifying punishment from God. So again, if you were an Israelite reading, you'd be thinking, okay, I need cleansing, cleansing's possible, I really need cleansing. At the end of that section... Then chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, Isaiah again looks into the future. And he encourages Israel, in the future, God is going to cleanse Israel through his branch, through the Messiah. We saw this last week. Okay, so so all of this would would be stirring your heart. You'd be longing, you'd be hopeful, knowing that cleansing was possible. You'd be longing to be cleansed. And the question you'd have is, how can I be cleansed from the guilt of my sin. And I think Isaiah purposely put all this stuff together to to focus on that, and then that's what he's going to tell us in chapter 6. Okay, but first he has one more point he wants to make. He wants to drill even deeper, if you're an Israelite reading this passage, or just for the rest of us, he wants to drill even deeper your sense of you need, you need to be cleansed from sin's guilt. And so that's the point of chapter 5. He wants to show us just how much Israel needs cleansing. Chapter 5. Here's what he says in chapter 5. I think you've, I hope you've been reading and studying. Chapter 5, 1 through 7, he tells a parable. A man has this 
land, which is full of rocks and weeds and stumps, and he clears it all so it's nice fallow ground. He plants a vineyard in it, builds a watchtower, waters, fertilizes, watches the vineyard grow, and is excited about these luscious grapes that are going to be harvested soon. He's watching them, watching them. Don't those just look good? Mm, you just imagine. So he's watching these, these grapes growing, and then it's time. And he picks a grape. Oh. And it's just terrible. The ESV translates it, instead of grapes, there were wild grapes. And just trying to find, I mean, wild grapes tasted horrible. So Isaiah asked the question, what's this guy going to do with this vineyard that just yields lots of horrible tasting grapes? He's going to destroy it. You don't grow a vineyard to just to grow horrible tasting grapes. He's going to destroy it. I'll be nodding. That's right. That's what the owner would do. And God says, right, you're the vineyard. God planted you. God cared for you. God nurtured you. God watered you. God loved you. He came to see there's grapes. He was looking for grapes of love for God, love for other people, care for the poor. But instead, all he got was grapes of bloodshed and oppression. And so what's God going to do? He's going to destroy the vineyard. And then he details... Six specific areas of sin that, that are the terrible tasting grapes. Six woes, verses 8 through 23. What does the word woe mean? It means doom on you, right? It means your future is frightening beyond belief. Woe, only woe is in your future because of these things. So verses 8 through 10, woe to those who pile up money and property. Verses 11 through 17, woe to those who drink too much and just ignore God. Verses 18 through 19, woe to those who are so attached to sin. It's an interesting metaphor. You're so attached to sin, you're like a donkey carrying a cart. There's always a cart of sin. Wherever you go, over here, a cart of sin behind you. Wherever you go, there's sin that attached to you. Wherever you are, there's sin. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Verse 21, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Just proud about that. Verses 22 to 23. Woe to those who drink too much and who let bribes, let the love of money, cause them to become unjust in their uh, court decisions. So there's six woes. There's the terrible tasting grapes. And so what God's going to do is just like the vineyard, he's going to destroy it. And in verses 24 to 30, God says he's going to whistle for the nations to come. Nations are going to come and destroy Israel, which is exactly what ended up happening through Assyria and Babylon. Okay, so now if you're an Israelite reading this book, at this point, you've heard that there's sin, you've seen your sin, you're seeing that God does cleanse, you're feeling a deep, powerful need for cleansing. Wouldn't you be? Do you see the flow of how Isaiah's leading you? And so Isaiah 6 is written to answer the question, how can you be cleansed from sin's guilt? That's Isaiah chapter 6. And the way that Isaiah answers this, it's very interesting. It's by telling the story of how he was called as a prophet. Now, he was called as a prophet before he received the prophecies of chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. So if he was writing this book chronologically, he would have put this as chapter 1. But he puts this as chapter 6. He wants to explain how he was called as a prophet. 
But he puts it there because when he was called as a prophet was when he experienced being cleansed from sin's guilt. So he's crafted this passage. Sin, need for cleansing. Cleansing's possible. Sin, cleansing's possible. Sin, need for cleansing. How do I get cleansed? Chapter 6 is his answer. How can Israel be cleansed from her sin? And as I studied, we're just going to focus on verses 1 through 8. Verses 9 through 13 is specifics about God's commission to Isaiah. You can read them basically. You're going to go, you're going to preach to Israel, and they're not going to listen. Your preaching is going to make them harder. How long, God, until I judge them and punish them? Their sin's gone too far. So you can read that. But we're going to focus on verses 1 through 8 now. How can Israel be cleansed from sin's guilt? How can you be cleansed from sin's guilt? And there's five aspects, five parts of what Isaiah experienced here. First, Isaiah saw God. Cleansing from sin starts with seeing who God is. Look at verses 1 through 4. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So they're all calling to one another, okay? And their voices, these seraphim's voices were so loud. Look at verse 4. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him. That's the seraphim who called and the house was filled with smoke. Okay, so cleansing from sin starts with seeing God. So just ask God right now. God, here I am, Mercy Hill Church. Maybe I'm a visitor. Maybe I've been here for a long time. Here's your word. Would you show me who you are now through these words? So it's not just what did Isaiah see, but Lord, help me to see. God, come and do that right now. Verse 1. Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. God's throne is the picture of his absolute authority over everything that exists. You understand that? God is the absolute authority over everything. Because, see, God created everything. If God hadn't have created, what would there be? Just God. If God hadn't created you, you wouldn't be here right now. You've got to understand this. If, if God hadn't made you and given you life, you would not exist. You're here because God made you, which means you owe God everything. And he is your absolute authority. He just is. You are born into a universe where God is your absolute authority. Here we are. Okay? And Isaiah saw that. So see God's absolute authority over you. Then in Isaiah, in verse 3, Isaiah saw God's perfect holiness. Now, seraphim are probably angels, like angelic creatures. Angels are created beings um, whose, whose focus, devotion is to serve and worship and praise 
God, and they're totally captured by God's holiness. Verse 3, they call to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, why repeat the word three times? Okay, It's because in the Hebrew language, the strongest way to express a superlative, you know, you've got good, better, and best. Best is the superlative in grammar, right? All you grammar people, okay? The strongest way to express the superlative in the Hebrew language is by repeating a word three times. So if I wanted to say that somebody was like so strong that nobody else like had any strength in comparison to him, I'd say, he is strong, strong, strong. God is holy, holy, holy. He is the only being in reality that in himself is holy. So what does that mean? Okay, well, two weeks ago we talked about it. God's holiness means that he's not just one of many important things in your life. God's holiness means that who he is, like his sheer godness, makes him infinitely important, infinitely valuable, infinitely precious. That's what his holiness means. I mean, just, if you just think about God's, God's a being with infinite power and flawless wisdom and total sovereignty and control of everything and perfect in his love and matchless in his goodness and mercy and care and compassion. This is who God is. And so that means that there is no one and nothing that even comes close to comparing with God. See, there is a being in existence who's just infinitely greater than anything else it is in his power, wisdom, but not just brute stuff like that, also in his love and his goodness and his mercy and compassion. The illustration I used two weeks ago, which I I just really like this one, it's like everything else in the world is gravel. Just think about your hands and gravel. God is a 100,000 carat diamond. No comparison. Just, he's beautiful. So absolute authority is kind of like, okay, that's just like raw. Like somebody could be an absolute authority and, and you like say, well, I don't like him, but I guess I better bow. Okay, so we don't want to stop at absolute authority. His holiness, his perfect holiness, not just power, wisdom, sovereignty, but love and compassion. God is the kind of being where not just is he absolute authority, but he is, he's beautiful. He's majestic. You can just weep with joy when you see who he is. Look at God. So, absolute authority, perfect holiness, beauty, majesty. One more thing that God showed Isaiah. God's revealed glory. The seraphim also say, the whole earth is full of his glory. What does that mean? God's God's glory is, just a, a kind of a fancy way to, it, it's the display of his holiness. It's the display, the demonstration of his love and power and mercy and goodness. So the whole earth is full of displays of God's goodness and love and power and compassion and care. The whole earth is full. That's what he's talking about here. I mean, think about this. I just try to list some examples. I mean, think about the size of the universe and the order of the universe. That's such a display of God's power and wisdom, okay? Just think about the universe. And then think about what God created. I love to talk about just these amazing bodies that he's given to us. I mean, where did you get your body? 
God gave it to you, right? What did you do to get it? Nothing. He gave it to you. You know what it would cost to make one of these? Like billions of dollars, right? And it would just be like, okay, I mean, right? It wouldn't work at all. And God gave this to you for free. Now see, you are a billboard. Doesn't that just show you God's good? I mean, look, look at what I can do. I mean, just like, you know, I can see, I can talk, I can taste, I can hear, I can walk. You've got one. He gave it to you. So you are a billboard of God's love and goodness and care. The whole earth is full of us. Six billion. We're displaying his glory. So you've got the order, the size of creation. We've got the ways our bodies works. We've got just the goodness of God. And and plus like making stuff like lasagna and taste buds that work together. I mean, it's, it's amazing how God's made us. It's just love and goodness and love and goodness. And then think about how the sun rises and causes plants to grow and how the tides cause the water to circulate. And how the sun warms us too and we can eat good tasting grapes. Okay, just all the different ways. That, and, and so the point is, the whole earth is full of displays of his holiness. God's not hiding. He's not hard to see. I'm seeing all of you. You're all displays of God's glory. God's good. Oh, look at you. God's good. God's good. And look at the way that the world works. So absolute authority which taken all by itself would just be like, okay, I may need to bend my knee before him. I don't really like him. It doesn't stop there. Perfect holiness. He's heartbreakingly beautiful in his love and his goodness. And then all of that is not hiding. It's displayed. We can all see it. Okay? Isaiah saw God. That's the first step to be cleansed from sin's guilt. And the second step as Isaiah saw his sin in light of who God is. Listen, it's a whole different ball game. When you think about your sin in light of like other people, or you think about your sin in light of, yeah, I've, I kind of screwed up here a couple times, or you think about sin in kind of like psychological categories, I mean, there's maybe help in all that, but that's nothing compared to what happens when you see your sin in light of who God is. It's devastating. Look at verse 5. And I said, he's just seen God. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. He's letting the part, speech, stand for the whole, his whole sin nature. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I'm just as sinful as all the rest of Israel. And here why there's woe. It's because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Seeing God's authority, perfect holiness, and revealed glory in light of our sin, seeing our sin in light of him, the result is woe is me. Now, let's just see if we can get a little taste of what Isaiah was feeling here. Because, see, to be cleansed from sin, you've got to go there. You've got to go there. Our culture kind of makes this hard for us because we're taught that, that you know, everything is about feeling good about ourselves. And anything that would make you not feel good about yourself is suspect. That's not true. And that's not helpful. God wants you to feel really, really good about him. Okay? And that'll really make you feel good. The path to feeling good is not feeling good about us. 
Woe is me, is what Isaiah says. So let's just see if we get a little, little taste of this. Now here's how I want us to do this. Think about a sin, just one specific sin you committed this past week, okay? Maybe you gossiped, they slandered somebody, maybe you were impatient in a situation, maybe you uh, lusted. I thought of the situation where I slandered somebody this last week. So I want you to think of just that concrete one, and let's just kind of walk through how that would show up in relation to seeing who God is. So let's start about the fact that God's your absolute authority. Think of that sin in terms of God's absolute authority. Okay, so don't worry about, has anybody else sinned worse, or are you better than anybody else, or why you might have done this, or just see your sin in light of who God is right now. The God who is your absolute authority, who created you and to whom you owe everything, and who is, in fact, your rightful authority, he has commanded you, don't be impatient. Thou shalt not gossip, or slander, or lust. So, my slandering this last week was rebellion against the absolute authority of the universe. You feel that? Let's say that you're you're driving and you're pulled over by a police officer, and they see so you pull over, and then he walks up beside says, "I'd like to see your ID, please." And you look at him, you say, "No," and you drive away. Do you feel just a little little bit of, of the horror of doing that? It's like I'm not going to do that. He's he's like like rightful authority. Yes, he is, and you shouldn't do that. Slandering this week, my slandering this week, wasn't just rebelling against rightful authority, it was rebelling against absolute, infinite, rightful authority. Now, do you feel how that just strips you bare of excuses? And you're just like left, like naked before God? Guilty? Do you feel that? That's what Isaiah was feeling at this point. How about God's perfect holiness? Let's see our sin in light of his holiness. Everything else in the universe, everything else, is like gravel compared to God being the 100,000 carat diamond of perfect, majestic, awesome, heartbreakingly beautiful goodness and love and compassion. And we have an even clearer revelation of that now, right? Jesus on the cross. It's heartbreaking, achingly beautiful to watch that love. Isn't it? (gasps) That's who this being is we're talking about. That level of love and goodness and compassion and, and mercy. So when I sin, I am sinning against that level of beauty, majesty, goodness, Kindness, faithfulness, purity, holiness. I am dishonoring that. I am defaming that. I tried to think of an illustration. Imagine that you you walked into whatever museum has the Mona Lisa, the original Mona Lisa painting. Okay, the Mona Lisa painting, rare, right? Precious, valuable, right? One of a kind, beautiful. And you walked up to it, and you, you, you stepped over the little barrier there, and you, you pull out of your backpack spray paint, and I sprayed your initials. S-D-F was here on the Mona Lisa. Now, do, you, do you feel the horror 
of how defaming, profaning something of that level of worth, my slander this week profaned something of infinitely greater worth than the Mona Lisa, as did your lust this last week and your impatience this last week and your gossip this last week. Let this just strip you bare of excuses. One more. See our sin in light of God's revealed glory. Our sin wouldn't be as bad if we could plead ignorance, right? I I didn't know. I, I didn't know anything about God. Well, no, the earth is full of God's glory. Every human being you see is a billboard saying, God is good and loving and awesome. You can trust him for everything. Everybody you see is a billboard of that. Sunrises, billboards, sunsets, billboards, Monterey Bay waves, billboards, fish, billboards, food, billboards, 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 billboards. God's awesome. It's all over for us to see. The earth is full of his glory. And so when we've sinned, we've knowingly rebelled against our infinite rightful authority and we've knowingly spray-painted our initials on something infinitely greater than the Mona Lisa. So do you feel that? Woe is me. I am lost. I have no excuse. This is who I am. That's who you are. I've sinned against you? I knew I sinned against you. I'm undone. Woe is me. And so... Isaiah next saw that he deserved only punishment from God. That's verse 5. Woe is me, I am lost. That's what he means. Woe is me, I am lost. Too often, when we feel bad about having sinned, we feel bad because we hurt somebody else. And there's a place for that. Okay? That's not what's going on here. Uh, Or we feel bad because we got found out. Right? Getting found out makes me feel bad. Everybody knows. I slandered somebody this week. Or we can feel bad because of, you know, I should be above that, you know. None of that's what we're talking about here. None of that will bring you cleansing. The only kind of bad feeling about sin that'll bring you cleansing is when you see your sin in light of who God is and you see that I deserve only punishment from God, woe is me, for I am lost. So he saw that what he had done was absolutely wicked, that he had no excuse. Do you see that about your sin? There's no one here who's an exception to this. My sin, your sin, absolutely wicked, and there is no excuse. And each of us before God, apart from being saved, okay, just laying the foundation, deserve only punishment from God. You need to go there if you're going to experience what George Woodfield experienced like you're at the beginning. You need to go there. Now notice what happens next. This is just amazing. So there's Isaiah. Woe is me. I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips and I've seen who God is. 
I'm lost. Next, God cleanses Isaiah from all his guilt. Verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, one of the first things I thought of was like, Ouch! Right? I mean, your lips are one of the most sensitive parts, but, but we need to go where the biblical authors take us. And Isaiah doesn't say anything about ouch here. Nothing about pain. That's not the point here. Okay? The point is that God cleansed him. That the coal touching his lips took his guilt away and it atoned for his sin. His sin had been atoned for. Now, this Hebrew word atoned is really the key thing here. I want you to just just drill deeper on this. The Hebrew word for atonement, because you can read about atonement, atonement's a theological word. Do you know what atonement means? So crucial to get this. The word atoned or atonement has the idea of sin being paid for. Paid for. Sin deserves punishment. Woe is me, I'm lost, I deserve punishment. This sin deserves to be paid for. So for Isaiah to hear, your sin has been atoned right? Your sin has been atoned for means the payment has already been made. The punishment has already been paid. How? Isaiah is going to tell us in 47 chapters. Okay, Isaiah 53 is where we're going to, going to hear how, and it's through the Messiah. 700 years after Isaiah wrote these words, Jesus was born, lived, died, and Jesus on the cross, paid the punishment, received upon himself the punishment that was due for all your sin. All of it. That's how your sin is atoned for. And Hebrews 9 says that God retroactively applies that back to Isaiah and Old Testament believers. So understand what's going on here. Isaiah sees his, he sees God, first of all. Absolute authority perfect holiness, revealed glory. And then he sees his sin in light of who God is. And he says, woe is me. I deserve, I deserve only punishment from God. To sin against a being of such love, such goodness, such compassion, such beauty. Woe is me. And then God brings him cleansing. Now, one of the questions I hear is, how about faith? Right? Faith, all through the scriptures, is held up as the step through which we receive forgiveness of sins, right? We trust. We trust God's mercy in the Old Testament. We trust God's mercy is revealed even more clearly in Jesus in the New Testament. So where does faith? I, I think Isaiah, because faith is all through his book, okay? I think the reason Isaiah doesn't mention that is he wants all the focus here to be on what God does. All he does is, woe is me, God cleanses him. But I think in the woe is me, he's looking to God's mercy, He's trusting to how God will atone for his sin. And then in response to that, God comes and brings cleansing to him. And so at that moment, seeing God, seeing his sin in light of God, sees that he deserves only punishment from God, he's trusting God's mercy, and then cleansing comes. And all of his guilt, he felt 
all of his guilt at that moment lift off of him. And he felt God's abiding, forgiving, perfect, complete forgiveness fill him, come upon him. That's not all that happens. One more thing. I'd never noticed this before in the way that I saw it this week. I want to see if you, if you see what I'm seeing here. This cleansing didn't just remove the guilt of his sin. It also broke the power of his sin. Because up to this point, Isaiah was a man of unclean lips. Unclean, sinful. Sin was ruling in his life. But now, after this cleansing, Isaiah's heart, or through this cleansing, Isaiah's heart became completely surrendered to God. Verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. I read a commentator who pointed something out to me I'd never seen before. This is really an astonishing thing because Isaiah has no idea what, where God's going to send this person he wants to call. Doesn't get the destination. Didn't get the job description. Doesn't know anything about it, right? Who am I going to send and who's going to go? Any of you going to volunteer for that one? It's like, uh, where? Right? And what's going to happen? A couple of questions just real quick for you, Steve. Okay. Isaiah had no idea what God was going to call him to do and where God was going to tell him to go. But see, Isaiah didn't need to know because he didn't need to know what God was going to call him to do because he knew the God who was calling him. Right? He had seen God's goodness and love and mercy displayed in his being cleansed, his sin being atoned for. And when a being who has a flawless track record of goodness and love and compassion and mercy, when you know that that's who he is, and he says, who will go someplace I'm going to send him, you don't need to know where, because you know him. And you know that whatever it is, it'll be good. Not necessarily easy, right? As you read, we'll find out more about Isaiah's life. But it'll be good. It'll be God. It'll be love. It'll be whole. It'll be right for Isaiah. See, one of the ways you can tell that you've been cleansed from your sin, as Isaiah describes here, one of the ways you can tell that you've seen God's love in this cleansing, the way Isaiah describes here, is because your heart is completely surrendered to God. It's one of the ways you can tell. Not that you become perfect, Okay, because we don't, not until glory, all right? But just like Tom was sharing earlier, your heart is surrendered. You want God. You want to be faithful to God. Your heart is surrendered. It's one of the ways that you can tell you've been cleansed. See, because you've experienced his perfect goodness and matchless mercy and love in his cleansing. You've experienced infinite goodness and love in being cleansed by God. And so if you've experienced the infinite goodness and love of being cleansed by God, then you know he's infinitely good and loving and I trust him. Whatever he says, I want to do. But if there's things in your life where you say, well, I, I, don't, I don't know if, 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 I, if I, you know, if God's calling me to that, I'm not sure if I really want that. Um, I think that should raise some questions as to whether you've ever really seen God in his full love and goodness and care for you. I think you should raise some questions. If your heart isn't fully surrendered to God, 
have you seen him in his goodness? Have you experienced his love displayed in lifting all of your guilt off of you and bringing his perfect forgiveness upon you? Have you seen his love? Have you seen his love? A lot of people believe in a God out there who, and they haven't seen his love. They haven't experienced it in this way. So here Isaiah is telling his readers how, how they and how we too can be completely cleansed from our sin. Okay? That's what he's been building towards in these first five chapters. And then now chapter six, he gives the answer. So what does this mean for us? I just want to give you three, three things to think about, three implications, three things to ponder. First is, just ask yourself, have you been cleansed from sin's guilt? Have you? Every single person here, you either have or you haven't. Right? There's no degrees. Okay? You either have been or you have not been. It's one or the other. It's total black and white. It's, an, it's a one-off thing. Okay? Have you been cleansed from sin's guilt? Have you experienced something like what Whitfield experienced? I wouldn't maybe raise the bar necessarily that high, but... But have you had a time where you've seen, and what Isaiah experienced, where you've seen God, you've seen your sin in light of who God is, you've acknowledged that you deserve only punishment from God, and what you felt was, woe is me, I am lost. And in trusting God, in trusting Jesus, as we see it more clearly now in the New Testament, God cleansed you from your your guilt, and you felt the guilt all of it lift off of you and you felt his love and his forgiveness, complete, perfect love and forgiveness come upon you. Have you experienced that? One of the ways you can tell is because you love Jesus more than anything else now. So I tell you straight up, if you don't love Jesus more than anything else, you should raise questions as to whether you've ever been cleansed from your guilt or not. I'm not saying you haven't been. I'm just saying you should raise questions. And only you know. And you're the only, it's not important what I think. It's, it's, It's only you know. But see, how can you have experienced this degree of love from Jesus Christ dying on the cross and paying for your sins and not love him? How can you do that? I don't think you can. But see, don't don't take this as like bad news. If you haven't been cleansed from your sins, then you want to know, don't you? Because you can be. Okay? You can be. You can be. He wants you to experience having all your gift, all your guilt lifted off of you. And he wants you to experience having his perfect forgiveness and love poured upon you. He wants you to experience that. He sent Jesus so that you could have that. And when you do experience that, and when you do have that, you will love Jesus and your heart will be surrendered to him. You won't be perfect, but when you sin, it will grieve you. It will break your heart that you've sinned against a being this holy, this good, this loving. You won't feel bad because you were found out or because somebody else saw or because you're above that. You'll be broken because you've sinned against Jesus Christ. Pure, perfect love, holy, goodness, mercy. 
So ask yourself if you've been cleansed from your sin. Be honest. Don't play games here. Again, nobody else is going to be asking you. This is between you and him. Okay? And second, if you haven't, see who God is. This today, right now. See him. Perfect holiness, absolute authority, revealed glory. And see your sin in light of who he is. This last week's sin. Your life's sin. Understand that you deserve only punishment from him. Just let that, let seeing him, just let it strip you bare of all excuses. It's like you're just standing naked before him. Woe is me. I'm lost. And then as you put your trust in Jesus, his death on the cross, as you see him, trust him, look to him, you will feel the weight of all your guilt lifting off of you. And you will feel his perfect love and forgiveness coming upon you. And third, let God's love, his forgiving love, his cleansing love, his atoning love, his punishment paying love, his punishing his own son on the cross for you, Love. Jesus being willing to be punished by the Father for you, love. Let God's love strengthen your trust in Him. God has infinite love. He is passionately for you. He loves you. He loves you. The whole earth is full of His glory. He's revealed His love in the cross. You, you see it. So, so let it strengthen your trust in Him. So you're completely surrendered to him. And when he says, who will I send? Who will go? Say, here am I, send me. Okay? Why would you say that? He's good. He loves. I don't understand all the wherewithal of what's going to happen, but if he tells me to do something, someone who has only always been perfectly faithful and loving and good to me, I'm there. So surrender your life to him completely. That area where you're rebelling against him, just crush that with his love. Just destroy that this morning with his love. Stop rebelling against him. He's perfect love. What are you doing? Fuller? Okay? What are we doing? When he calls you, say, here am I, send me. When he calls you, spend time with me in the word, in prayer, on a regular basis. Here am I, send me. Why? Because he's good. He's love. This will be good. Right? When he calls you to put to death sin, the one who's calling you is perfect love and goodness. He's revealed it to you. So say, Here am I, send me. When he calls you to love your wife, okay? Love your husband. Here am I, send me. When he calls you to love your kids, to teach your kids about Jesus, to lead family devotions, that's a frightening thing to start if you haven't been starting. Ah, here I am, send me. Okay, hon, here's what we're going to do. Pray for me, all right? Go for it. What he calls you to do. When he calls you to work hard at your job, here am I, send me. Get your finances in order. Here am I, send me. You're good, you're loving. Okay, you're gonna help me. All right, let's do this thing. When he calls you to be devoted to a group of brothers and sisters and love them and care for them and bear their burdens and pray for them and serve them and ah, weep with them when they weep and rejoice with them when they rejoice. That's what we're doing in our home groups. Say, okay, yes, I wanna do that. When he calls you to advance the mission, say yes. Let God's love as displayed in his cleansing 
change your heart like it changed Isaiah's heart so that whatever he calls you to do, you're completely surrendered to him. Here am I. Send me. Okay, let's stand together. Dave, come on up. I just want Dave to sing a song over us where we can enter in. Again, you, you know where you're at in your heart. I mean, why would I preach to a church and say, have you had your hearts cleansed from sin? Well, it's because there's always wheat and tares, right? I think it'd be foolish for us to assume that every single person here has been cleansed from your sin. I don't want that on, on my head. So I want, I, want to, I want to ask you, think about this. And if you're not, then it would be helpful. It'd be good news for you to find that out in, in the sense that, I mean, why keep going thinking you've been when you haven't been? That's not going to help. God wants to cleanse you. He wants to cleanse you. He loves you. So God, I pray that you'd move upon us right now. We're standing here before you. You love us. We see the cross. You are perfectly good, compassionate, kind, gracious. You are infinitely perfect, pure love. We see it. We've wronged you. We've knowingly sinned against you. Come and cleanse us, Lord. Come and cleanse us. Thank you, Jesus, for your death on the cross. Thank you that we can have all the guilt lift off of us and your perfect forgiveness and love come upon us. And Lord, through that, cause our hearts to be fully surrendered to you right now, I pray. We thank you, Father, for sending your son, Jesus. And loving us so much that you would crush your son with the punishment that our sins deserved. And Jesus, we thank you for coming and being willing to be beaten and scourged and nailed to the cross and hung up to suffer because you love us because you wanted us to have the guilt of our sin lifted off of us and you wanted us to have your perfect forgiveness and love poured out upon us we see you father son by the spirit thank you for cleansing I pray that no one would leave here today without having been cleansed from sin's guilt. And I pray that as people maybe for the first time are cleansed today or as those of us who've already been cleansed are reminded and re-experienced again that we would all love you and be completely surrendered in trust to you because you love us. We know you love us and you're good and we can trust you for everything. And then, Lord, let us move into our workplaces and our neighborhoods as men and women, young people who have been forgiven for all their sins and know that you love us and and your cleansing is upon us. And so with that joy and that peace and that strength, we can care for the poor. We can meet our neighbors. We can love them. We can speak of you to them, people at the workplace. Pour that out upon us, God, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.